Thanks, Holly. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and it's good to see each one of you this morning. Thank you for being here, and again, if you're a guest with us, just want to extend a special welcome to you and just say how glad you are you've chosen to to join us. I know uh, finding a new church home can be a difficult thing, and so we're glad that you've taken that step and and joined us this morning um, and and check that out. So I'd love, before we look more closely at this passage this morning, just to ask for God's help and, uh, and pray to him for his insight as we study this together. Uh, Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us your word, and I pray that by um, hearing it this morning, by hearing it read, by, by studying it here together, um, that we would uh, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And we know that it only happens when your spirit energizes your word, when he illumines it to us. So we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit now um, as we study God's word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was raised uh, with the maxim that uh, if it sounds too good to be true, uh, then it probably is. And, and every time I read an advertisement, many of you are probably raised with that as well. Every time I read an advertisement or, or I see a deal, um, I can hear my dad's voice in my head saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so I immediately start looking for um, the fine print and the, the asterisks and the daggers and all the stipulations. And I actually, I kind of love finding it and kind of saying, aha, there it is, you know, this price goes up after six months, or, or results are not typical, right? That's, all, that's always the one on the diet ads, right? Results are not typical. And uh, you, I kind of rejoice in finding, figuring out that this is, is better uh, than it really promises to be. And uh, when I uh, grew up, I grew up right here in the state of Missouri on the other side in St. Louis and grew up in the show me state. And uh, in school, we learned about how Missourians, you know, we're not easily uh, taken in by rhetoric or or talk. You got to show us, show me proof. Um, We're the show me state. And so when I read this account in John chapter 20 of of Thomas encountering Jesus, or or rather not encountering him, and he's kind of incredulous about Jesus being risen from the dead, I, I can immediately relate to him. And, and I think most of us can, right? Um, Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath, um, he says, you know, Thomas is a representative figure who brings our doubts and hesitations into the open. I think a lot of us can relate to Thomas because Thomas knew what we know is that, that dead people stay dead, And Thomas had watched Jesus die. He knew that Jesus was dead. And dead people stay dead. And in fact, I think it isn't just Thomas who doubts. And and I think Thomas kind of gets a bad rap. You know, we know him as Doubting Thomas. All throughout the 2,000 years of church history, you know, poor Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas. But the other disciples... They doubted too. In fact, um, if you were to read Luke 24, you don't have to turn there this morning, but I just want to read when the other disciples, Jesus appeared to them. Thomas wasn't there, but listen to what they said when they saw Jesus for the first time. This is Luke chapter 24, and they were talking about these things, and Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. 
I mean, all of the disciples doubted. Thomas just didn't happen to be here in this moment, but doubts arose in their mind. So I think we can be a little hard on Thomas, um, calling him doubting Thomas. All of them knew that dead people stay dead. And so when they see Jesus alive, doubts arise in their minds. But Thomas now, he wasn't present at that moment. And, and when the disciples come and they tell him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord, he refuses to believe. He refuses to believe the eyewitness testimony of, of some of his closest friends. And he says he won't believe until he sees it for himself. But is it possible? Is it possible that actually not seeing Jesus is better, is a blessing, is a gift. And it, it wouldn't seem like it, right? But, but Jesus' answer to that question in this text is, is yes. Jesus says in this passage that we were looking at this morning that those who believe, those who place their faith in him without seeing him are blessed. And, and what Jesus is saying in this passage is that faith is the way that we come to know him now, that he has gone to be with his father. And and that far from being a a difficulty, that this is actually a blessing, that it's a gift, that's a good thing. Now, faith in our culture today is is a mixed uh, word, is a mixed concept, and it's a people, I think that generally we like the word faith, but what really is it? Do we really understand it? What is faith? And this is actually what Jesus and and John teach us in this passage. And and he shows us three things. And so we look more closely at this text this morning. We're going to see three things. First, what faith isn't. Then what faith is. And then thirdly, how do we get it? So so what faith isn't. We're going to start talking about what it's not. Then what it is. And then how do we get it? So what it is, what it isn't. Or what it isn't, what it is. And then how do we get it? So first... We see what faith isn't in John chapter 20, verses 24. Again, if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn and, and look at this with me together at this text. Uh, in verses 24 and 25, we see what faith isn't. So it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Like we said a moment ago, Thomas probably gets a little bit too hard of, of, of too much of a bad rap for wanting to see proof. But this is what the other disciples got, right? I mean, they got to touch him. They got to see him. But it is true that there's sort of a unique stubbornness, an obstinacy, even kind of a defiance in the way that Thomas responds here. If you were to look at this text in the original language, in the original Greek, Thomas uses the strongest possible form of negation that you can use in in Greek grammar. And, And basically he's saying that he's not even willing to believe in the possibility of this. And so um, the, the ESV gets it really right when it says, I'll never believe, but it's even almost stronger. You could really translate this, that I will never, ever believe this is even a possibility unless I see and touch for myself. And again, one of the reasons I think we relate to Thomas so well in our culture today is that Again, Oxford theologian, and actually he's a chemist and a historian as well, Alison McGrath, he has a great little book called Doubting. He says, we live in a culture that values doubt and distrusts faith. That we live in a culture that values doubt and, and distrusts faith. 
And whether we are here this morning and we believe in Jesus or not, all of us live with doubt, and, and actually all of us live by faith in some way throughout the day. I mean, faith is kind of the currency of everyday life in one sense. We place our trust in, in people and things, right? I mean, there's lots of examples of this. If, if you get on a, an airplane, you're placing your trust um, not only in the pilot who's flying that plane, but the engineers and the mechanics who have maintained that plane. So all of us are, are placing trust. If you go to the doctor, right, um, with Rachel being pregnant, I feel like we're going to the doctor all the time for these checks. I place my trust in this doctor. I don't know anything about this. I trust that what she says about how the pregnancy is going is, is right. Um, you know, all of us, uh, at least somewhat, maybe not accurately or rightly, but we place our trust in Wikipedia, right? We, we Google or we put in the term Wikipedia and we rightly or wrongly trust that what comes up on that page is uh, some uh, accurate reflection of, of the truth. So all of us live with a certain amount of faith. We all live by faith. But what we see in these verses is that when we come to the faith that the Bible talks about, that there's two things that it isn't. And that is that faith is not blind, and that faith isn't mystical. So the two things we see are faith isn't blind, and it isn't mystical. So when you look at these verses, Thomas isn't asked first to believe blindly. He isn't being asked to believe that Jesus rose from the dead with just sort of as a, as a raw fact, with, with nothing to support it, without any kind of proof at all, Right? I mean, he has the eyewitness testimony of, of 10 of his closest friends who he's known to be ones who tell the truth. And they come to him and they say, we have seen the Lord. You know, when someone that you know and trust and, and you know to be a truthful person tells you something, even if it's something that seems unbelievable, we aren't asked in that moment to believe blindly. We're being asked to believe on the testimony of someone that we know and trust and know to be a truthful person. We're being asked to believe on the basis of, of eyewitness testimony. And, and we even recognize this in our legal system today, right? I mean, the, some of the strongest evidence you can bring into a courtroom is the eyewitness testimony of, of multiple witnesses who all saw the same thing. And this is what Thomas has from his 10 friends who he knows to be trustworthy. They are telling them that they have seen Jesus risen from the dead. And actually, it's interesting. I think Thomas um, for a week in his life, you know, the disciples saw him at the beginning of the week, and now this is at the, the end of the week. For a week of Thomas' life, he relates to the apostles like we do today. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean for this week in between the time that, that they see him and that Thomas gets to see him, they believe, or they, he has the opportunity to accept or reject the resurrection of Jesus on the basis of eyewitness testimony, just like we do. But, but he didn't see it. And he chose, I say, I'm not going to believe it. And in fact, he goes so far as to say that he won't believe it unless his conditions are met. I mean, he excludes belief as even a possibility unless he's given the exact kind of evidence that he demands. But this can actually cut us off from true knowing, right? If I were to say I will not believe that Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States unless I see it with my own eyes. It, it doesn't matter how true that statement is. I'm never, that's a past event. I'm never going to see it with my own eyes. And so if we, exclude, if we demand evidence that it isn't possible to give, 
then, then we're never going to we cut ourselves off from certain kinds of knowing. So faith isn't blind. It's based on eyewitness testimony of, of reliable witnesses. But second, faith isn't merely sort of mystical or ethereal or just kind of a, an, an, a spiritual enlightenment or apprehension. Because look at what happens next in this account in, in verses 26 and 27. Eight days later, his disciples were inside and again, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. So, so Thomas isn't going to miss out this time. He's there with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then you kind of see him turning and he said, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And just as the disciples had told Thomas, Jesus has risen from the dead bodily. And this isn't a mere kind of spiritual resurrection. This isn't a vision of a, of a ghost or of a spirit. This isn't a trance or a dream. And I think it's important to remember that people in the first century, they had a category just like we do for dreams and trances and visions, right? They, they weren't dumb. Um, but what they didn't have, just as, as we don't have today, is a category for a person who was dead coming back to life with a physical body. This was just as shocking to them. It wasn't as though first century people just thought, well, people rise from the dead. No, they knew dead people stay dead. Maybe you could have an encounter with a ghost or a spirit or a vision, but dead people with dead bodies stay dead. But here Jesus is with a physical body there in front of them. And though it is a physical body, it isn't just the same old body that he had before. See, Jesus was raised to a new kind of life, and there's a certain amount of continuity, sameness, and discontinuity, a difference between his pre- and his post-resurrection body. He's the same. I mean, they recognize him. They, he eats with them. I mean, he's, he's similar, but he's also changed. Um, I mean, he can show up in locked rooms, and he can kind of appear at will. There's something different about him. And you see, the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, is the climax of John's book, of his gospel. And all throughout John's book, he's been painstakingly showing us what Jesus did, what he taught, what he said, how people responded to it. But the climax, the high point of the book, is none of those things. It's not him turning water into wine. It's not him raising Lazarus from the dead. It's not even him dying on the cross. The high point of the book is the resurrection. And and that's why, in some ways, this story is here. John is showing us that that Thomas could not be an apostle until he sees the resurrection. This is one of the requirements. All apostles had to see the resurrection. So that's why Jesus does come and appear there. And that's why Jesus comes back to the disciples. It's all about the reality of the resurrection. You see, the claims of Christianity, the truth claims of Christianity, all rest on the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection didn't happen, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ was not raised, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. And it's, it's worthless. 
And, and I think some of us are inclined to say, well, really? Because, you know, maybe it's just that, is it important that Jesus taught God's love? Isn't that really what matters? And, and that he gave us an example and even a point of sacrifice if he's given us kind of this way to live, if he wasn't really raised from the dead, is, it, is, is that really that big of a deal? But John says, absolutely not. He says, faith is not just sort of feel goodies about Jesus' example or about his teaching. See, Christianity rises or falls. It lives or dies on the resurrection. That's what John is telling us here in this moment. You see, the Bible is either a a life-changing, history-altering, earth-shattering historical account of Jesus' resurrection, or it's really a completely worthless, even harmful, best-selling novel. So we've seen two things that faith isn't. Uh, It it isn't blind, but based on the eyewitness testimony of reliable witnesses. And and it isn't merely spiritual or mystical, but it's it's rooted in history and a person with a body. So if that's what faith isn't, what is faith? And and we see it actually here in the text in Thomas' response. So keep looking down at verse uh, 28 and 29 now. So Jesus appears and he, and he says, don't disbelieve, but believe. And then in verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And what we see in this couple verses is that faith is divine and that faith is personal. Faith is divine and faith is personal. First, faith is is divine. Faith recognizes the divinity of Jesus. It recognizes who he is as God. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You see, real faith for John is all about answering the question, who is Jesus? From the opening words of John's gospel, these words of from the beginning— was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To his recording of Jesus' signs, and his recording of Jesus' teaching, and his works, they've all been leading up to this point of Thomas declaring, my Lord and my God. You see, Thomas finally understands, and he demonstrates to us what the resurrection means about who Jesus is. The resurrection means that Jesus is Lord and God eternal. And again, this offers, I think, a helpful corrective for us. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good example. Uh, You see, he's either God or he's seriously disturbed or or diluted in some way. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, he's constantly forcing the question of his identity. He's basically constantly saying, either crown me as king or kill me. But there's no in-between. He never holds out the option to us of just calling him a a good moral teacher. And I think this is important for us as as believers, as also for skeptics. I mean, if you're here as a skeptic this morning and you kind of say, I'm not sure I buy this whole resurrection thing, or even really if I buy who Jesus is, I say, feel free to reject Jesus, but do so on his terms. Right? I mean, reject him on his terms because we can't just keep quoting him as a great moral teacher, as a good example, because he, he doesn't leave that option open to us when you read the Gospels. You see, all throughout history, great moral teachers don't claim to be God. 
I mean, they point us to God, they, they say that we should worship God, but they don't accept worship as God. And that's what's happening in this moment. Thomas is worshiping Jesus as God, and, and he takes it, he accepts it. He doesn't say, no, 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 Thomas, I'm just a good moral teacher. Don't call me Lord and God. He accepts this worship as God. But maybe you say, okay, so maybe Jesus wasn't a, a, a liar. He wasn't, you know, sitting there saying, I'm God, and I, but really I'm not. Maybe he was just kind of mixed up, kind of confused, and he didn't really understand what was going on. Maybe he was kind of diluted. Maybe he was a, a little bit off. But again, this doesn't seem to fit the testimony of, of the Gospels. As we read who Jesus is, he doesn't seem to be one who is confused or diluted or crazy. He seems to be a, a good teacher. And so as C.S. Lewis says, he's either a liar, or a lunatic, or Lord, but he doesn't leave the op- option of just being a good moral teacher open to us. And for Christians, it's important for us to recognize that, that Jesus is not just Savior. He is our eternal King. He's both Lord and God. And the resurrection doesn't just save you, it actually, it purchases you, it, it seals all that Christ has done on the cross, and, and it means that if you are in Christ, that he is, all of you belongs to him, everything that you have. And that is faith. It's, it's propositional, and there is a propositional component to faith, that there's a doctrine here that must be embraced and, and cognitively believed. But it's never just a doctrine, in fact, one definition of faith I found this week, which um, I think is actually a really good representation of how, how many of us think about faith when we hear that word, it goes like this. It says, faith is a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. So based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. But the way we're talking about faith here isn't about spiritual apprehension rather than proof, but rather an apprehension that goes beyond or transcends proof. N.T. Wright, who's perhaps the foremost scholar on the resurrection of Jesus, argues that it isn't a matter of choosing between history or faith, as though, you know, faith means we just have to kind of believe in the resurrection in the face of history, No, he says we must use faith and history. And he has a fantastic book on this. Actually, he has two books. One that's very, very long called The Resurrection of the Son of God, a much shorter, easier to read one called Surprised by Hope. And I just want to read you a section of Surprised by Hope that I think is so helpful. He says, faith in Jesus, this is N.T. Wright, risen from the dead transcends but includes what we call history and what we call science. Faith of this sort is not blind belief which rejects all history and science. However, he says, though the historical arguments for Jesus' bodily resurrection are truly strong, we must never suppose that they will do more than bring people to the question faced by Thomas, Paul, and Peter, the questions of faith, hope, and love. He says, we cannot suppose, we cannot use a supposedly objective historical epistemology as the ultimate ground for the truth of Easter. And I love this line. He says, to do so would be like lighting a candle to see whether the sun had risen. 
To do so would be like lighting a candle to see whether the sun had risen. What Wright's point is here is that if Jesus has truly risen from the dead, then he is the Lord of everything. And that, that means he is not only a, a, a subject of history, but he's the source of history and science and, and all the rest. And it is from him that these tools of inquiry and science and history, they come from him and they find their ultimate meaning in him. And he's making the same point that C.S. Lewis does when he wrote, I believe in Christianity like I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but by seeing it, I see everything else. So faith is designed, it is, is divine. It recognizes Jesus as Lord and God. But faith is also personal. And when I say faith is personal, I don't just mean that it's, it, I don't, what I don't mean at all is that it's private, right? If, if Jesus is risen from the dead, it's, it's a public thing. It's not just that he's risen, like, for me, Jesus is risen from the dead. No, if Jesus is really risen from the dead, then it's a public thing that's true for all people in all times and all places. But faith has to become personal, you see, faith doesn't just believe in the resurrection as sort of a, a mere fact of history. It believes it personally for me. And again, we see this in Thomas' declaration. He cries out, my Lord and my God. And actually, I think it's interesting that you notice he makes this declaration before he touches Jesus. Did you catch that in the text? He actually doesn't touch Jesus and then declare my Lord and my God. He just sees Jesus and hears his voice and says, my Lord and my God. And I think this is important to know because you see when Thomas encounters Jesus, he actually transcends the type of knowing that he thought he was going to use. He thought he was going to say, okay, I'm going to touch and I'm going to see and I'm going to then I'll verify but the moment he encounters Jesus, what makes all the difference is relationship and love. And see, this is why Jesus can say, blessed are those who don't see, because the kind of faith that knows the resurrection, as Wright puts it, includes but ultimately transcends sight. You see, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian until you say with Thomas, my Lord and my God and you say it with the personal pronouns, my. You see, there's a profound difference between the propositional statement, she is a wife, he is a son, she is a mother, and the personal statement, she is my wife, he is my son, she is my mother, right? Those two things are dramatically different. Both are necessary, but only the personal statement transforms us. See, Jesus must become the center of your life, and this is what happens when faith becomes personal. You see, Jesus offers new life, not just insurance from death. Jesus offers new life, not just insurance from death. So we've seen what faith isn't. It's not blind, it's not mystical. We've seen what it is. It's, it's divine. It's recognizing the divinity of, of Jesus. And it's personal. But the final question we need to ask this morning is, how do we get it? And how do we grow in it? How do we get this kind of faith? And I just want to think um, about three things here. 
first is, is to read the eyewitness accounts. I mean, notice what John says in those final verses, verses 30 and 31 that we've heard, read earlier. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, with the purpose that, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Read the eyewitness accounts. That's why they were written, that we might have faith in Jesus. And John, the author of this book, goes to great pains to say that he was an eyewitness. In fact, even in his, uh, one of his other writings, the letter of 1 John, um, he makes this really clear. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, we have made manifest. We have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you. John is saying, I was there. I, I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. That is what I'm proclaiming to you. And ultimately, this is how we are blessed without seeing. Or, or you might say that this is the way that we see now. This is the way that we encounter Jesus now is through his word. And and no matter where you're at on your faith journey this morning, whether you're here at Christ Community, you're just saying, I don't, I came with my wife or my friend and I'm not even sure I I buy any of this. You're just checking out Jesus. Or you've been following Jesus for a long, long time or anywhere in between. This is a great next step. You can never go wrong in strengthening your faith by reading the eyewitness testimony about Jesus. And, and it's good to come to church and, and hear sermons. It's great to talk with other Christians. It's great to take classes and learn. But there is no better way to encounter Jesus, to get the kind of faith that John is talking about here, than by reading this book. You see, even the disciples, after seeing the resurrection, again, this was not something they had a category for. I can't stress that enough. This was just as shocking to them in the first century as it is to us in the 21st century. Even they are confused, and they actually end up turning to the Old Testament for guidance, right? And almost every time Jesus encounters people after his resurrection, he points them back to the Old Testament and says, let me explain. This is, has told, me, told you that this was coming. Let me show you how this points to me. You see, the Bible is always what helps our faith grow, seeing the whole story of God. That's why, part of the reason why we're doing Open Here, this endeavor to kind of read through the Bible in a whole year, because rooting ourselves in God's Word inevitably helps us to grow in our faith. And not only so, but God is also more about proving, is, is more about proving that He just exists, right? I mean, God, I think all of us have probably said at one point or another in our life, wouldn't, if only Jesus would just show up now, or if God would just make himself clear in this moment, then, then I would believe, or, or my faith would be strengthened. But when you think about it, God could choose to appear right here, right now. But the thing is, in that moment, I don't know if it would inspire the kind of faith we talked about, the faith in his love and his goodness, his trustworthiness. Right? Because just knowing that God exists isn't... James says in, in, in his book that you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder, right? Just having God show up and believing that he exists doesn't necessarily inspire the kind of love and trust. I mean, the, the demons, James says, they have probably a clearer picture of who God truly is than, than any of us in some ways. And yet they 
certainly don't have the kind of faith we're talking about here. You see, only Scripture introduces us to God on his terms. Not only saying that I'm here, I'm present, I exist, but this is who I am. In the Bible, we find a full picture of of all that he is and his love and his grace and his mercy and his justice. See, we all have doubts. We all have doubts. But the question is, are are they honest doubts or are they really willful disbelief? You see, if we have honest doubt, if we really have serious, honest doubts, then we need to explore more because at the end of the day, our hearts will not believe what our minds reject, right? Our hearts can never embrace what our minds reject. But the thing is, is that the reverse is also true. That our mind cannot know what our heart will not believe, our mind cannot know what our heart will not believe. If, if we have willfully chosen to disbelieve in our hearts, there's no amount of evidence or reason that will ever convince our minds if we've already made a decision at a heart level that this isn't true. You see, our goal should be, no matter where we're at, to move to an increasingly humble confidence where the more we truly believe, the more we can truly, the more we can truly know Theologian Anselm, a great thinker in the church, um, said that I believe that I might understand. That's our goal. So first, read the eyewitness accounts. Second, know that you are known. Know that you are known. Another thing that I find so interesting in this text, did did you notice that with Thomas, Jesus comes into the room and he actually kind of quotes Thomas's ultimatum back to him. He says, Jesus, he says to Thomas, here I am. Put your hands in my hands, in, in the nail holes there. Put your hand in my side. But Jesus wasn't there when Thomas made that statement. <laughs> and yet Jesus knows what he said. And here's the thing. Jesus knows you now already. He knows you better than you know yourself I mean, have you ever had that experience? Maybe you've had this experience of, of moving in with a, a roommate who was a, a good friend. And you, and you thought, I really know this person. And, and then you move in with them and you've lived together for a little while. And so like, oh, wow, I, I didn't know that about you, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. But when you get through that stuff, the relationship actually gets really strong, right? I mean, the best marriages, for instance, are, are one where both parties are, are known and, and loved, And here's the thing, Jesus already knows all the quirky stuff about you. He knows you better than any human person. He knows your doubts. He knows your fears. He knows your weakness. He knows if you're sitting there willfully disbelieving, he knows that. And yet he desires to make himself known to you anyway. Know that you're known. And third, and finally, remember his scars. I'm I'm convinced that part of the problem, part of Thomas' struggle with faith was the trauma that he had just undergone. Just having watched Jesus die this brutal death on the cross, how could God allow this to happen? We talked about that last week. It wasn't supposed to end like this. 
But when he sees Jesus' scars, he knows now that there is no pain, no loss that God cannot redeem. It always amazes me to think that Jesus' resurrection body retains the scars of his suffering. The nail holes in his hands and the spear in his side. You see, nothing kills faith like pain and suffering. Nothing kills faith like pain and suffering. But nothing encourages faith like remembering Jesus' scars. You see, no other religion offers to us and for us the scars of God. No other God has wounds. Muhammad, Buddha, they don't have wounds. No other God has wounds. Os Guinness says, Christianity is the only religion whose, gods bear, who God, whose God bears the scars of evil. We may never fully understand the suffering and pain that has come into our life, but Jesus does not stand apart from it. He bears the scars of evil, and they are a sign that it's coming to an end. The resurrection is the promise that scars and pain and death do not define us any longer, and they will not define us ultimately. His sacrifice for us will always be remembered because it inspires faith, and, and there's nothing that can happen to us that it, Jesus did not experience. You see, faith in the risen Christ is not just new truth that we believe, but a new life that we live. And this life that we live comes through the death that we celebrate each week in communion. We say each week, and these words I think are particularly impactful this morning, that we celebrate communion as a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven on the work, by Jesus' work on the cross. You see, in communion, the gospel is actually proclaimed to our senses. We don't see the risen Jesus here, but he's left us this meal that we can taste and touch and see and savor Christ's presence. So this morning, we don't get to see Jesus bodily raised before us, but we get to celebrate the meal in which we get to taste and touch the good news of the gospel. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to celebrate communion with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have embraced him in the kind of faith that John has displayed for us here, then you are welcome at his table. And no matter where you're at this morning, um, you're welcome to use this time as, as a place of, of reflection and prayer. And when you come to the table, gather in groups of, of four or five around the table and then take the bread and dip it in the cup. And once everyone's done that, then take together as a group. And there's four communion stations. There's two here in the front. There's two in the back of the room. This one in the back of the room on this side has gluten-free communion almonds available. And it works best if, as we go to receive communion, if you exit kind of from these side aisles and then return to the center aisle. And if you're newer with us, you may think, wow, this is kind of a little cramped. These aisles and pews are a little narrow. And it's true. We're used to bumping into one another a little bit in this process. So it's, it's all right. Um, take your time and see and savor Christ. Come to the Lord's table when you're ready and taste and touch the good news. 
of the forgiveness of sins. Come when you're ready.